The Lord is our salvation, amen? And he has given our salvation through Christ, amen? But before we get to that good news, every man has to go through the blackness of that bad news so as to realize the state that they are in. And that is what the Apostle Paul has been doing from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20 in the book of Romans, which we've been studying for the past few weeks. So I invite you to open up your Bible now to the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 21, and we'll be looking at all the way through 26 today. Romans 3, 21 through 26. <clears throat> Again, before, we, before you can see how beautiful a diamond is, you put it against a black cloth, and that's how it shines so brightly and sparkles so crisply. And that is why we talk about sin as Christians. And sin itself is not to be misunderstood with simply a foible or a mistake like biting your fingernails or something that's just tripping up sometimes. Sin is blackness. Sin is death. It smells like wounds. It looks like an open grave, the Apostle Paul says. It's like snakes. It's like a feet that are swift to shed blood. It's peaceless. It's heartless. It's ruthless. So we need to understand the weight of sin and what it does to our fellow man and how it offends the Lord who created the world to be good and to express His nature. So, Read with me now, Romans 3.21, and what Paul has just said is all have sinned, and your best efforts mean nothing to the Lord, because he's a just judge. He will punish even the smallest sin, because he is good. And for the Jew, this meant that works of the Mosaic law are not a means to achieve a right standing with God. Look up at verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared righteous in the sight of God, because through the law only comes the knowledge of sin. But now let's read. Let's change course now. Having seen the blackness of sin and death, and look at the diamond of the gospel. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Let's say a prayer. Lord, I ask that you would be with us as we understand this passage today and help us understand. Open our eyes that we might see the wondrous things in your law today. I ask that you would speak through me to your people, that we would all come under uh, a greater appreciation for who you are and what you've done. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So in this passage, if, there are for, if the, in this passage, Paul speaks about some of the deepest truths in reality. He speaks about God's saving power being available. He speaks about how that power can be appropriated by a man or a woman and how the justice and love of God converge on a brutal cross of a man named Jesus of Nazareth. If there ever was a theological diamond, this passage would be it. No matter which way you turn this passage, the logic and the power of the gospel shines. I want to break it down into two steps. The righteousness of God revealed and the justice of God upheld. That's how we're going to treat this passage. So first, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Verse 21. But now, in this new era of history... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. First of all, what is the righteousness of God? It is God's saving power. That is the righteousness of God. And that's what the gospel is about. If you flip your Bible over, over maybe one page, you'll see in verse 16, Paul introducing what the gospel is about. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because in it the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith for faith. So the gospel is about the righteousness of God, the saving power of God. Secondly, it has been manifested. Manifested means it has been revealed. The righteousness, saving power of God has been revealed and therefore made available. That's, that's how the good news begins. God's saving power has been revealed and made available in a distinct and concrete form. That's the good news of verse 21. The question now is where, where has God made his saving power available and known? Through what means? First of all, it has not been made available through the law. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. All right? It has been manifested 
apart from the law. So in history, that Mosaic law of the Old Testament did organize and order God's people. It had its rules and regulations, but ultimately, in the plan of salvation, it served to show people their sin and their need for a Savior. Look in chapter 2, verse 29. Or, um, rather, chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Because what function does the law serve? Does it serve a righteous giving function? No. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Thou shalt not murder... And Jesus told us that if you've hated your brother, you've murdered in your heart. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And Jesus told us that if you've lusted, you've committed adultery in your heart. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know that because the law shows it to us. And Paul says, I wouldn't know what sin is if it wasn't for the law. I wouldn't know what it was to not covet if the law said you shall not do that. So the Old Testament law was God's way of revealing sin to us. But it was not, it was not God's power to save us. The law is good because it shows us our sin, but it is not the source of righteousness. But he says, so that we don't misunderstand. So we don't think, ah, that Old Testament stuff. So that we don't throw aside and eschew the law, he says, but the law and the prophets bear witness to it. There are promises in the Old Testament, is there not? Think of, think of some of the promises from, in your Bible reading. There is the promise that a seed of the woman would crush the head of a serpent, the originator of evil. There is a promise that through this man, Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And there's illustrations of salvation. There is God's provision of being saved from his judgment in the ark. There is the exodus from Egypt, which foreshadowed our deliverance from sin and death. A a deliverance from slavery. There's pictures of the atonement, Christ's sacrifice. Remember when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, God says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and sacrifice him for me. And God stopped him right before he did that. But Abraham, almost speaking as a prophet, in Genesis 22, 8 says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And he did. Every, and every sacrifice that a Jew would make under the Mosaic law illustrated the one undeniable fact that the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. And then there's pictures of a conqueror. There is a Joshua who would cleanse the promised land. There's a king who would rule forever. 
There's a promise of a servant of the Lord who would suffer for his people. There's a promise of one like a son of man who would approach the ancient of days and receive a kingdom. There's a prophet who says, here I am, send me. So the Old Testament, the Torah, the scriptures and the prophets serve a prophetic function in total. They tell us that you are a sinner. And they show us the source of God's saving power is going to be made available through sacrifice of one conqueror. So if you're looking at the Old Testament to save you, it's like staring. It's, you know when children, you, you point to a small infant. Look at that. Look at that right there. I, I, I used to do this to Wesley. Wesley, look at mommy. And what would Wesley do when he was a little baby? He would stare at my hand instead of what I was pointing to, right? That's, that's an infant's way to view things. And Paul is saying that was the Old Testament. The Old Testament was the hand pointing to something else. What was that thing? And John says, uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures... Because in them you think you have life. But it is they that bear witness about me. The Old Testament was the finger that pointed to the Savior. So that brings us to the next part here in verse 22. So where has the righteousness of God been made available, manifested? The righteousness of God through faith in Christ. The object... The thing through which God has acted is Christ, not law. Christ lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died and rose again to include us in that resurrection. He is the seed who would crush the head of the serpent. He is the one through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. And he is the lamb that Abraham spoke about. He is the son of man who would be approaching the ancient of days and receiving a kingdom in times to come. The righteousness of God has been revealed and made available through one man, Jesus Christ. And the way we appropriate that How does one get that? How do I get that for myself? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. If Christ were the ark right before the flood, the key to open the door to the ark is faith. You can get in. Salvation is available. And that is so pertinent today because here we are, alive and well, in our right minds. We, we are, we, right now, as you listen to me, if you have not done this, if you have not run into the ark for salvation, it is free and available, and God says, here's the key, faith in my son. Come, find safety in me, because judgment is coming. But while it is called today, don't harden your hearts to this message. 
So the object of God's saving activity is Christ. Christ is the one that the Old Testament was pointing to all along. And the righteousness of God, the saving power of God, is appropriated to you by faith in Christ. So, a a few observations. First, theologically speaking here, the gospel is not just a message that God's righteousness has been made available. It's not just that. It's that God's righteousness... His saving power has been made available through an identifiable and distinct means. It's not just that God is gracious. It's not just that God is merciful. It's more pointed than that. It's that God's grace and mercy has been made available through Jesus of Nazareth, who died for your sins and rose again. Now, historically speaking, because I love I love understanding the history. Isn't it great to understand the background of the Bible? And N.T. Wright has done a marvelous job in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. And he, he makes the point that, histor- as speaking as a historian, he says, thousands of Jewish people in the first century redrew, changed their theology just randomly, they changed their theology and redrew their hope of salvation and a kingdom and resurrection, not around law, but around Jesus. They changed the object of their hope. What a strange thing to do, historically speaking. And so the question is that, why would they do this after this man was crucified? If anything... The crucifixion of Christ showed him out to be a liar, a fraud, right? I mean, he obviously wasn't the Messiah because he was crucified by the Romans. The Messiah in the Jewish mind was supposed to conquer the Romans. And yet you have thousands of Jews immediately after the death of Christ changing their theology. Their whole thousands of year theology changed and redrawn around Jesus of Nazareth. Why do that? Something must have convinced them that Jesus was correct in what they said. And that is why N.T. Wright, uh, in his book, one of the last things he says, that is why, speaking as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Amen for that. Now, that's theologically and historically speaking. And again, I want to hit this point of appropriation in verse 22 through 24. There's faith is sprinkled throughout this passage. It's faith. It's by faith, through faith, for all who believe. It's everywhere. Why Why must it be appropriated by faith? Why isn't it just, why can't we just do our best in life? And then God will see that we've done our best, and then, then God will see that and justify us. Why, why is it by faith? Well, verse 23 answers the question. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory 
of God. So Jews with the law, you've broken it. Gentiles without the law, you've broken it. So the most moralistic person you know has sinned before, has broken God's law before. And the loosest living person you know has broken God's law as well. So here's the declaration. Everyone, everyone has broken God's standards. No one seeks after God. No one is righteous. No one understands. All have turned aside to some degree, right? There is no one perfect, and God is a holy God. And if he weren't, there would be no hope for a world without tears. So since God is a holy God, he requires perfection. But all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, but, verse 24, but you can be justified. That is, you can be declared righteous, or you can be the beneficiary of God's saving power by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So grace by definition means that something is given to you which you did not deserve or else it would not be grace. So you can, you can, you can be declared righteous, sins wiped away, and stand right before God as a gift through Jesus Christ. So here's, here's how faith works. The gift is, is Christ. He is the means through which God is acting, right? Think of Christ in a present. And there is righteousness in there. And there is adoption in there. And there is eternal life and forgiveness no matter what you've done. Here's the present. How do you receive that? With the empty hands of faith. The saving righteousness of God has been revealed in and through Christ, and it is made available to us as a gift which we unwrap with the empty, undeserving, yet thankful hands of faith. So that is how God's righteousness has been revealed, through Christ. How has God's righteousness been upheld then? Paul, in verse 25, writes, it is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation. The Greek word for propitiation is hilasterion, and it is the Greek word for the mercy seat. That is, it's the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it's the place where the priest in the Old Testament times would enter once a year into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelled and he would come with blood in his hands, the blood of a goat, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And when that blood was applied, God's wrath was wiped away and turned into favor for his people. So... God put Christ forward as the place and the means through which God's wrath would be turned away and then into favor. God put Christ forward 
as a propitiation. He is the means. He's the cloth which wipes away the sin. Christ is the means of atonement, the means through which we are put at one with God again, back into relationship with Him. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 writes about this very thing. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that of this creation, but the tent in heaven, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ's death is the ultimate sacrifice which turns God's wrath into favor. He is the mercy seat, the place where God's wrath was turned away and into favor. Now, why, why go through all this? Why, why this whole process, though? Why did it need to be a cross? Why do it this way, Lord? Why, why couldn't he just forgive sin? As is the folk theology of the day. Why can't God just see that we're doing our best and then if he exists, forgive us? Why not that? Answer is in verse, midway through verse 25. This whole process was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Okay. He passed over former sins. That is to say that man has been a sinner since the beginning of time and he has not utterly destroyed the murderous, adultering, hating, warring, thieving, lying, deceitful, deviant, ruthless, heartless man. But he has allowed us to go on. He passed over former sins. Again, the example of David is so rich because it's so obviously an abomination where David, a man who, who God gave the kingdom... Okay, he got, God gave this man the kingdom. He slept with another man's wife and killed that man so that he could keep her. Where is God's justice in that case? How is God a just judge that allows such people to live and continue on? Three weeks ago, there was a task force 
um, a sex trafficking task force sent out into Georgia. And they saved or rescued, I believe it was 39 little girls who were sex trafficked in a mobile home. Locked up. Some of them abused. In, in bad and horrid conditions. To be sent overseas. And not to get too graphic, but one of the little girls had to have surgery because of this abuse. What would you do? What would you say if these men were brought before the judge whom they will go to? And he said, I'm a forgiving judge. And therefore, I'm, I'm just going to let you go. Just try not to do that again, please. Where is the justice there? Where is the justice? And I would, I would assume, I would assume that a good judge would hand the full weight of the law on those men, not only to punish them, but to ensure that they never can do it again. Well, if you apply that standard to a human judge, how much more to God? who is the judge of the earth. What an awful thing to let sinners go unpunished. But here's the thing. God did do that. He did let sinners go unpunished. He passed over former sins. Here you are alive, a sinner. There are vile men who have died at a good old age. But God let the passed over their sins. So the question, please understand this. Logic necessitates that the wrong question to ask is, why doesn't God just forgive sin? Do you see how that is just a ludicrous theological question when you really put some sustained reflection into it? Of course God can't just forgive sin. It's because he's good. It's because he has some semblance of righteousness in him. Like any man would. The real question is, why did God pass? A, why did God forgive the sinner? That's the, that's the better, more logical question to ask from the thinking man. He put Christ forward as a payment for your sin. Because justice must be paid. But he put Christ forward as the propitiation. The place where his wrath would be turned away. So Christ is our substitute. He stands in our place. And that is why now sinners can appropriate that sacrifice to themselves through faith in him. This, verse 26, this whole process was to show God's righteousness. That's why there was a cross. That's why there was a death so brutal. That's why he was forsaken by the Father. That's why Christ came, to give his life as a ransom for many. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, lest his, right, lest his justice be called into question. 
The cross was the answer. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. And at the same time, the justifier of the one who has faith in him. That is, the one who declares you righteous through faith in Jesus. So, the cross allows God to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. Amen? There are three images here in this passage. There is the image of a court of law, which we talked about. That's where the terms righteousness and justification come from. Come from. So, when you go before the Father in heaven, and every man will stand before him who is to judge the living and the dead. If you have applied the blood to yourself through faith in Christ and Christ alone, and you've clung to him, God will look at you and say, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but you are righteous in my sight because of the blood of, the Christ, of Christ is washed over you. You are clothed in Christ. I see the fruit of my Son in you. Righteous. Enter in to the joy of my glory. The grand banquet hall of my glory. Where there will be joy and feasting forever. That's the image of the court of law. The second image is the slave market. It is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here's the thing. There is a difference between the... The reason I bring up redemption is because I want you to understand that we were bought out of slavery, of sin and death, okay? Redemption was a, a term that they would use on a slave market where you redeem a slave by purchasing him out of slavery, and now he belongs to you. So do you understand that? Redemption in Christ Jesus. We belong to him. He has purchased us out of sin and death. So this is, hold that there for a second. Hold that there. Redemption means being purchased out of slavery. So I was watching a movie last night and with the family. And one of the people in the movie says, well, it doesn't make sense that God would punish the innocent to forgive the guilty. Right? That's what the, that's what the cross is about. That's what we've been talking about, Right? It doesn't make sense that God would punish the innocent to forgive the guilty. Now, you've been talking about propitiation in this passage, the means of satisfying God's wrath. And I want to tell you that there is a difference between the satisfaction theory of the atonement and the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. Follow me on this. Just think with me for a minute. Satisfaction theory just means I'm mad and I need to put my wrath out. I have wrath. I'm not going to put it on, man, on mankind, so I need to put it somewhere, so I'm going to put it on my son. That is um, an ancient view of the atonement, but that's not the reformed view of the atonement. 
Now, I'll sing. I will sing with you the wrath of God has been satisfied in, in that hymn. I will sing that gladly because the wrath of God has been satisfied and taken away. But it's not as if God just needed to vent frustration out, okay? That's not what Paul says. It says, Paul says it, this whole thing happened so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. So this is called the penal substitution theory of the atonement, penal substitutionary atonement. So penal means um, it refers to the penalty and substitution refers to Christ being the substitute. So he takes the penalty. All right. So this is not just about God being angry and needing to put his wrath somewhere. Wrath is involved, but the whole point was not just to get something off God's chest. The point was so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. So now back to the question. It doesn't make the question is, how does how does that God make how does that make God just that he would punish the innocent to forgive the guilty? And I want to say the cross is more than that. And that's why the term redemption is important. It's more than that. Let me see if I remember this passage, but Philippians 2. Okay? God, or Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be clung to. Okay? When he was in heaven. He didn't cling to that. But what did he do? He emptied himself of his divine prerogatives and took on the form of a man, a servant. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what did God do? The next part of the passage says, Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the point, this is called the covenant of redemption. Okay? The covenant of redemption means that there was a pact between the Father and the Son before time began. And the Father said, if they sin, I will put the full weight of my wrath on them. But if you go and you purchase them out, redeem them out of that slavery of sin and death, then when I raise you up from the dead, I will raise them up with you. And I will give them to you, and you will be their God, and they will be your people. And that's why Christ says, all authority has been given to me when he raises from the dead. So it's more than just a payment. Jesus did this, Philippians, for the joy set before him. Jesus, now that he's paid for us, he gets us. So you see that? So the, the deal was sweet for Jesus too. It wasn't just a matter of paying for sins. It was that, but it was more than that. He redeemed us out of the marketplace of sin and death. So now we are his bride, he calls us. And he clothes us with his righteousness. And we are his. And he is ours. 
He redeemed us out of that. So you see, it's a wrong question to ask, why did God punish the innocent to forgive the guilty? It's more than that. It's he went into death to buy back the guilty for himself. And if you have faith in Christ, you have been bought with a price, Galatians says. So now glorify God in your body. So here's the long and short of it. The righteousness of God has been revealed where? In Christ, not through the law, not through your best efforts. The righteousness of God, the saving power has been made available and it has been made available through Christ. That's how the righteousness of God has been revealed. How has the the justice of God been upheld? Because God put Christ forward as a propitiation, the place where his wrath would be turned away and turned into favor. And it is through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So Christ purchased us out of slavery and now we belong to him and he is our king and Lord and all authority has been given to him. So here's the question for you. Yes, I'm speaking to you. To the person who feels this strongly, I am speaking directly to you and it is not me who is speaking. It is the Lord who is speaking through his word. Understand that this message is for you right now. God will punish sin. He will punish your sin. And he will either punish that sin on the cross of Christ or in judgment in eternity. Where do you want your sin to be punished? That's for you. Where would you like your sin to be punished? On the cross of Christ 2,000 years ago or in judgment for eternity? This is your opportunity to understand that Christ purchased you out of sin and death. And you can appropriate that glorious, eternal life, forgiving, justifying salvation by putting your trust in Jesus. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Christ promises such things. So, I suggest very strongly that you realize that you are a sinner and that you realize that God has acted through Christ to put you in the right with him and that you now appropriate that sacrifice to yourself through faith in him. Let's say a prayer.